Review of Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, healthcare policy, and more. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Today, we are joined by Emma Sando, a PhD student in health policy and political analysis at Harvard University for a discussion of the Affordable Care Act. Prior to starting her PhD program, Emma spent six years in Washington, D.C., working on the passage and implementation of the ACA. She served as the spokesperson for Medicaid and healthcare.gov at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and worked on ACA coordination at the HHS Budget Office. We start with an overview of the ACA and the key players in the repeal and replace efforts thus far, the possibility of an insurance premium death spiral, the likelihood of Trump's ability to keep his promise to retain the popular provisions of the ACA, and what a replacement law might look like. We also talk about the ACA's flaws in some historic context for them and then give some well-hedged predictions for the coming weeks. Please check our website, www.rospod.org, for show notes with time annotations for specific topics and links to some news articles that come up in our discussion. A quick note that we recorded our show on Friday afternoon, a few hours before President Trump signed an executive order urging federal agencies to resist the ACA to the maximum extent permitted by law. Because this happened after we recorded, of course we couldn't discuss it, but there is a helpful article explaining what this might mean from Margo Sanger Katz of the New York Times linked from the show website. Lastly, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher, which makes the show easier for others to find, and share us on social media. We tweet at ROS Podcast and are on Facebook at facebook.com slash review systems. Please drop us a line at contact at rospod.org. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome, and thank you for being here. I wanted, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I wanted to start by just reviewing some of the key features of the ACA. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with everything, just so that we can remind ourselves of what might change in the coming years if it's repealed. So can you take us through some of the key features of it? Sure. So the Affordable Care Act was passed uh, seven years ago, and it contains a lot of different titles and um, provisions. What is sort of thought of as Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act is, is typically the coverage expansions. Those are the, the different changes to the law that added insurance coverage to people that were on the individual market where they can purchase health insurance through the marketplace where they can get subsidies if they're lower income, if they're under 400% of the income threshold, or they can get um, Medicaid if state decides to expand Medicaid and the person is under 138% of the poverty threshold, the federal poverty guidelines. So just to make clear, the Medicaid expansion is mostly for very poor, non-disabled, childless adults, and that option is only available if you live in a state where the governor chose to take it. So, for example, Kentucky chose to take it, whereas Mississippi, Alabama did not. Correct. And then the exchanges and subsidies are for folks who are maybe lower middle income who don't get insurance with their job or are self-employed and they get subsidies or tax breaks from the government that helps them afford their premiums. Correct, correct. Okay. And okay. as well as if folks are over 400% of, of the federal poverty level, they can also still purchase health insurance through the marketplaces and um, be able to shop for it and pr- compare prices, which wasn't an option on the individual market before. Okay. And then... There's the individual mandate, which is the rule that everyone has to have health insurance um, or else pay a penalty 
in their taxes every year, which is, I think, one of the most controversial parts of the law and was upheld by the Supreme Court, gosh, a couple of years ago now. I can't remember when that yeah. case was exactly. June 30th, 2012. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a bunch of insurance regulations, a lot of which are quite popular. So there is what's known as um, the Patient's Bill of Rights, which uh, contains a lot of a lot of very popular provisions, such as children under 26 could be covered by their parents' plan. Um, no lifetime limits on on the amount that uh, you can receive from your insurance benefit. No pre-existing condition um, exclusion, so everyone can purchase insurance even if they have a pre-existing condition. It sort of sets the standard on what is considered insurance, and that's known as the essential health benefits. So all insurance products have to contain a set of 10 different benefits. And that's things like, you know, mammograms or pap smears, and it's not the kind of insurance where it only kicks in if you have a catastrophe like a car accident or something. Right, right. And it does include a lot of preventative services um, and substance abuse and mental health services um, and some other things that weren't always typical in every insurance plan before. Okay, great. Who are the important players in the ACA repeal? Which policymakers should listeners be aware of and keep their ears perked for in the news in the coming weeks? We are in the process of changing um, administrations, and Donald Trump has appointed Tom Price as the Secretary of Health and Human Services. He's a congressman from the state of Georgia, as well as a a former orthopedic surgeon. And he is up for nomination. At this point, he has testified before the Senate Health Committee, the Health Education and Labor and Pension Committee, but he hasn't yet uh, testified before the Senate Finance Committee. Okay. And he's likely to be confirmed in the coming weeks, but it's politics, so anything can can hap- happen. But he will be uh, voted on by the Senate Finance Committee, which is coming up. Okay. I'd heard that he had some kind of questionable financial transactions, but, you know, it sounds like he has some pretty overwhelming support of his fellow Republicans. Don't think it seems like he'll be derailed. Right, right. Okay. Typically, people aren't voted out, especially if their party holds the majority in these sorts of things. They would um, decide to self-bow out, and um, it doesn't look like that is uh, in the future right now. But, of course, anything could happen. Anything can happen. (laughs) Who else? There are a number of key senators that are at play. Susan Collins and and Cassidy um, are some sort of swing senators that Mm -hmm. have been talking a lot about not voting for a repeal without um, a replacement in place, and there are uh, a lot of ideas floating around um, that they're proposing on uh, what a a replacement would look like. Okay. Um, So those are some key senators to watch. And they're both Republicans? Yes, they are both Republicans. Okay. In the House, Paul Ryan is the the Speaker of the House, and he is has a very conservative uh, agenda um, and an eye towards reducing the amount of federal spending. Uh, he has proposed many major changes to the Medicare program in the past, which have actually passed the House um, at points before. 
that would essentially create a system of vouchers um, where people could buy their Medicare. That's uh, not very popular amongst <laughs> amongst voters, yeah, so yeah. and definitely not something that um, uh, Donald Trump campaigned on. So I'm not entirely sure that that would be in the cards in the future, but it's a sort of sampling of where his ideas are on on healthcare. Okay, and he he's a key player because I mean he has this conservative agenda, but he's the one who gets to decide what goes onto the floor in the House to get voted on. Right. Okay. Right. So the House is very much led by the party. So the party really decides what can and cannot be voted on, and they sort of have a sense of what the likely outcome will be before they bring things to the floor. Okay. Um, so a lot of that stuff happens before things go to committee or leave to be voted on in the House, whereas the Senate is a little bit more process-oriented, and things can sometimes be voted on and negotiated on the, the Senate floor and on the in-committee meetings rather than sort of behind closed doors. Okay. So who should we be aware of in the Senate? So there's typically six senators, um, or five to six senators, that are discussed um, as some swing senators. Um, I mentioned Collins and Cassidy, um, as well as Rob Portman um, and Rand Paul um, Corker and um, Murkowski of Alaska. Those are all sort of more moderate Republicans that have voiced a opposition to uh, repeal without a replacement plan right away. Okay. And um, a lot of those states that they represent have benefited heavily from the Affordable Care Act, so a repeal without a replacement would have a greater impact on their their states. Okay. In terms of leadership, there's Mitch McConnell. Uh, he's a Republican mm-hmm. from Kentucky. He has uh, voiced a pretty strong opposition to the Affordable Care Act for uh, about the last seven or eight years. And Chuck Schumer is replacing uh, Reid on as a minority leader in the Senate, um, and he's he's strongly in favor of the Affordable Care Act as well as Nancy Pelosi, who who led it through the House. Okay. And then there's a new chief of CMS, uh, Seema Verma. Yes. So so Seema Verma will also be going through the nomination and and approval process as well. The CMS is voted on by the Senate, the CMS administrator. And in that capacity, she will be in charge of Medicare, Medicaid, and and all the Affordable Care Act coverage expansion changes that we we talked about. And she is originally has worked in Indiana with Mike Pence, so she knows um, Vice oh. President Pence pretty well. And she's a Medicaid expert, which um, is very non-traditional as CMS administrator. Usually, those are our Medicare folks. So this is a little bit of a change of pace for Medicaid. And uh, she has a lot of ideas on the Medicaid program that are. A different direction than where CMS had been before, including uh, work requirements and and some other um, typically conservative changes to the Medicaid program. Yeah, more cost sharing and things like that with patients. Right. Okay, so balance of power in Congress is pretty heavily Republican. In the House, there's 241 Republicans to 194 Democrats, and in the Senate, there's 52 Republicans, 46 Democrats, and two independents who are Sanders and of Vermont and King of Maine, but they both typically caucus with the Democrats. What are the mechanics of it? 
how many votes are needed to repeal the ACA and then how many votes are needed to put in a, into place a replacement? So there's a budgetary process called the reconciliation process in the Senate. It was put into place to allow things that are related to the budget to work their way through the Senate a little bit faster than other legislation. So it requires 50 plus one votes in the Senate. And as you mentioned, there are 52 Republican senators. But in the case of a tie, Mike Pence would be voting um, as the president of the Senate. So three Republicans would would need to n- not vote for a repeal if they use the budget reconciliation process, which it, they look like they plan on doing for the various coverage provisions of the ACA, which are, are things that have to do with, with the budget, um, the Medicaid expansion, the subsidies for uh, health insurance, and, and the individual mandate tax. Okay. So if three Republicans decide not to vote for that, then it wouldn't pass. But it, again, there there are 52 uh, Republicans to 48 Democrats. And then for um, replacement, that's more of a, um, a policy. So it does need a 60-vote threshold. Okay. Um, so eight Democrats would have to vote for a replacement. Okay. All right. Let's review a little bit of what's happened so far. I heard that they had already taken some preliminary votes to repeal the ACA in both the Senate and the House, but hadn't actually changed the law yet. And I, I think this was what you were alluding to with the budget reconciliation bill. So they set up a budget blueprint outlining the repeal of the ACA, and it passed in the Senate on Thursday, mm-hmm. the 12th. What exactly does that do? And it doesn't have any teeth to it? Right. When the Senate is passing a budget to keep the government running in in normal order, it outlines a blueprint um, and tells the committees, generally, this is what we want at the budget committees you to come back to us with. And one of the things okay. that they said that they wanted to come back was a, real, a repeal plan from the budget committees. Okay. So now the budget committees are working, they're figuring out what a repeal would look like and seeing if they have the votes, um, because there are a significant number of people, as I mentioned, that want a replacement at the same time as the repeal, including newly inaugurated uh, President Trump. Yeah. And I'd, I'd read that their goal initially to introduce that legislation was January 27th. seems pretty unlikely to me that they're going to meet that. Considering that we haven't seen a plan quite yet, uh, I don't anticipate it, but again, we, anything is possible in politics. <laughs> and on Tuesday, January 17th, the office called the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, released a report that has made quite a lot of news. As I understand, the CBO is a nonpartisan federal agency whose mission is to provide Congress with nonpartisan budget and economic information uh, relating to current legislation. So what did that report uh, show, and and what do you think about it? So that report demonstrated what would happen in a case of repeal without a replacement. Since there is no replacement plans have been sent to the CBO, um, at least that we we know of, they, they couldn't score this bill, including a replacement. So this is what the world would look like with only a repeal, and it estimated that 18 million people would lose health insurance coverage in the first year, Mm -hmm. and then an additional 
two million uh, would lose coverage um, within nine years, and that that sort of assumes that there's a little bit of a sunsetting and a slower drawdown in the Medicaid expansion shutdown because there's some states that have implemented it has two-year budget window, so you can't exactly end Medicaid expansion tomorrow okay. um, in a lot, a lot of places. Okay. So it would it, 18 million um, if it were repealed immediately, but then um, more would come off. 32 um, million over the course of nine years. Right. And it also estimated that um, premiums would go up even more than they are currently going up. Hmm. It estimated that uh, a 20 to 25 percent premium increase over current estimations of next year's premium increase, and then a doubling by uh, by 2026. Okay. I mean, I know it's really complicated economically, but why do you think that these things would, would happen? So this is in economics what is known as a death spiral. This is uh, what happens when you don't have some of the safeguards in place to keep the market functioning in a normal way and and more and more um, people that are expensive and need high health insurance costs or health insurance purchase the the health insurance and their costs are very high, making premiums even more expensive and more expensive as healthier people decide not to purchase insurance. And that's essentially what CBO estimates what would happen if you were to eliminate the mandate and some of the uh, ways to make insurance more affordable. That spiral, that sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's um, happened in in health insurance markets in the past, in the the 80s and 90s, Um, and so CBO has a lot of data and information to model this off of. It's not as if they're working from, from nothing. Okay. President Trump and some of the other Republicans have promised to keep some of the more popular aspects of the ACA, so, you know, the ban on pre-existing conditions, allowing young adults to save in their parents' insurance. Do you have a sense of whether they'll be able to actually make good on those those promises? So this is a little bit like only eating your dessert. Um, you also have to eat some of your vegetables in order to to have a balanced diet, I guess. Uh, and, and the popular provisions can only really work without a death spiral happening um, if you include the, the things that people don't like as much, such as the individual mandate right. or some of the other, the other ways making the law work. So there are a lot of ideas that have been floated around, but um, none of them cover nearly as many people and... Um, uh, have as much affordable premiums um, and stabilization of the market as uh, the Affordable Care Act or fixes to the Affordable Care Act that have been shown to uh, to be scored by the independent bipartisan groups. I, I just want to be explicit about this one. The Republican solution for people with pre-existing conditions, they want to set up a policy where people with you know diabetes or cancer or whatever in order to remain covered, um, they have to keep continual coverage. So if their coverage lapses because they move or they change jobs or they forget to mail in their premium and they miss the deadline, then they're completely out of luck and the insurance companies are allowed to refuse them coverage or jack up their rates. So uh, it just seems um, a little bit disingenuous, uh, particularly on that one. Yeah, the definition of what a access to health insurance 
is different on party party lines yeah. um, or what yeah. what FF means. Yeah. And they haven't seemed to have meaningfully coalesced around a substitute plan. I've seen bits and pieces of different ones floating around out there, but can you talk about some of the common themes and characteristics of the replacement plans that have been put forward? Sure. A lot of uh, what has been put forward includes some very traditionally conservative ideas of um, high-risk pools, which are essentially f- funds for people that have very, very catastrophic cases and, and are at high risk, as the name suggests, to get insurance and it, it is subsidized through the state uh, is typically what the plan is. So, so sort of moving moving things over to the states is what a lot of the ideas do, hmm. providing additional flexibilities through Medicaid block grants, for instance, and allowing states to change their eligibility and benefits, probably usually reducing the, the eligibility, making it more difficult to sign up, and, uh, and reducing benefits in order to meet the grant, lower grant levels than, than under current conditions. And these, all of these designs have been sort of shown to uh, not be fully funded in a lot of Hmm. other instances. So in the social security program, there's some similar block granting type mechanisms. And um, these have the amount that is given to them annually haven't really increased for a while. So Hmm. the value of the dollar goes down annually, and as we know, the healthcare inflation is higher than than right. uh, overall inflation rate. Right. So, the value goes down even further when we're dealing with healthcare. Sure. So, meaningfully, they have less and less and less. Right, right, and it also depends on states putting a, a lot more of the risk and a lot more of the burden of uh, covering individuals. And as we saw in the 2008 recession. States, when hit by a recession, are hit much harder than the federal government because they can't carry deficits and they they have to balance their budget. And so when you have fewer people contributing to taxes because of increased layoffs, these social programs get even see increased eligibility but decreased funds. And and that would heavily, any of these solutions would heavily uh, hurt states in a recession. And that's something that not a lot of not a lot of discussion has been made to in in the political discourse yeah. which is unfortunate because we just went through a recession yeah. <laughs> so one would think that we remember what it was like yeah there's a healthcare journalist Sarah Cliff who writes for Vox the website vox.com I'll link to her article about this in the show notes she wrote a really interesting very concise distillation of seven of the conservative replacement plans and generally her takeaway was they're better for younger, healthy people and worse for older, sicker people. They offer less financial help to those who would use a lot of insurance. And it would make the insurance subsidies a lot less expensive than in Obamacare. Um, but it would also re- result in people carrying a lot more of the expense on themselves and fewer people having insurance in general. One so. small point that I want to um, just add to that um, is that I would I would add a grain of salt to when it's people say that things would be cheaper for younger, healthier people or middle-income folks or higher-income folks for that matter. In healthcare, it's very hard to put 
toothpaste back into the tube. Always be skeptical of things that say that things will be cheaper because um, uh, once people get used to a certain higher price, it's hard to uh, ask doctors, hospitals, uh, insurers, and everyone else that is receiving a benefit to receive less of it. Yeah. I do support the ACA, but I, I recognize there are flaws in the law. Some of those subsidies maybe were insufficient, leaving folks with really high premiums and high deductibles, which is a very bad combination. And again, Sarah Cliff, this um, healthcare journalist from Vox, had, did some really interesting reporting suggesting that there was significant backlash against the perceived generosity of Medicaid plans. For listeners who don't know, Medicaid is a program for low-income adults, basically publicly funded insurance for the poor. And my takeaway from her reporting, and I think many other observers, was, you know, maybe some of the cost-sharing and cutoff levels to qualify for Medicaid or some of the subsidies could have been thought through a little bit more clearly. What do you think about those criticisms, and and what are yours? I'm sure you have other ones. Uh, Sure. So, yes, and I think you've seen criticisms from supporters of expanded coverage and and supporters of universal coverage for decades that the subsidies weren't high enough. Mm -hmm. And I just want to take us back to 2010. No one really thought that the bill that passed the Senate on Christmas Eve 2009 uh, would become law until Scott Brown was elected senator for the state of Massachusetts and sort of put a wrench in the entire plan of um, Mm -hmm. combining the House bill, which had significantly higher subsidies and more generosity of coverage, and the the Senate version. And instead, uh, in order to get the law passed, the Senate version, which was less generous, had to be taken up by the House. And then, and then that that was the bill that came out. I think one of the concerns that was keeping the the coverage um, subsidies a little bit lower at the time was the impact on the deficit and um, how much how much was being spent. Um, and that's something that uh, continues to be a concern uh, because as the government takes on a greater and greater role in healthcare, it's always good to remember what the trade-off is, yeah. and that and what we're willing to accept as a society. And I think um, a, lot of, a lot of voters and people, it's going to be interesting in the coming weeks, a lot of people don't, don't fully understand the uh, health care system. And I, I anticipate that if you were to follow the polling of the Affordable Care Act, recently more people support the law than, yeah. than oppose it. And um, I have a feeling that people that opposed Obamacare will think that it has been repealed to some extent um, and think that the Affordable Care Act is a great replacement. <laughs> um, or that's just a, it's just a, what I have, have seen uh, in the past. We'll see if that comes to fruition. But it, what is known about the, what is in the Affordable Care Act has never really been fully understood by everyone. Right. Healthcare is not cheap, and it continues to get more expensive. It's growing at a lower rate than it did prior mm-hmm. to the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. But it's, it's easy to think that everything is the fault of the Affordable Care Act when when it not always is. Um, and also, right. people are largely comparing what they see to what's immediately around them, and so 
Sarah Cliff's piece was a really interesting demonstration of that. Yeah. I think on a broader scale, we're seeing a really big change in where risk lies in our society. So you, it used to be that the employer was responsible for a lot of the cost of health care. So a lot of your premiums and co-pays and all of that were, were largely paid by an employer and employers are sort of shifting that more on to employees and as people are shopping on the individual market more and more they're being the ones that are are seeing the price of health care mm-hmm. and the risk that is involved in that and that's a that would happen regardless of whether the affordable care act ever passed um and and a lot of the anger is directed towards this shift in risk yeah, yeah. If you could, if you could write, instead of repealing the ACA and replacing it, if, or, or if you could replace it with something else, or if you could re- introduce a patch bill to fix some of these problems, what would you suggest? Well, I am a big proponent of um, Medicaid, and I think that it does a really good job of lowering the cost of health care. And, and if you look at the per-beneficiary costs of Medicaid, it treats very complex patients very well. And if there's ways to um, uh, increase eligibility in that program and make it easier to enroll in Medicaid, um, I think that that would do a, a good service to the in, entire country. And you can you can make it so that it's fair for different income groups and whatnot. But uh, improving upon the Medicaid program would would benefit, I think, a lot of a lot of different types of people. That's so interesting because I've mostly heard people, and Hillary Clinton campaigned a little bit on this, I've heard of people saying we should expand Medicare, which is, <laughs> you know, typically the public program for older adults, so people 65 and older. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think um, as the last 52 years of, of having the Medicare and Medicaid programs has shown, the Medicaid program is actually where a lot more expansions um, have occurred. and. Uh, interesting innovations and and different ways of uh, delivering care more to more people. In one of the debates, I don't remember which one, they're all running together, Trump spent a lot of time talking about selling insurance across state lines as if there's some kind of panacea to solve all these problems. What does that mean, and would that, would that help anything? Right, so a lot of that idea comes from sort of uh, credit card laws, and oh, not not yeah. um, not as much auto insurance because that's that's state based. But some of your other what you think of as an open market uh, where you can purchase things outside of your own own state. And that idea is that maybe there's an insurer in Massachusetts that doesn't like that it has to cover all of the things that the Massachusetts state law requires it to cover. The thought is that maybe a person could buy cheaper insurance in Delaware or from an insurance company in Delaware that doesn't require as many, like, autism coverage or something. I don't know whether Delaware does cover autism or require covering autism or what whatnot, but that's a that's an example of if you need a less less generous benefit, it might be sold on I another um, state line. The problem is um, the Affordable Care Act actually allows for insurance companies to be sold across state lines. There's a there's a provision in the Affordable Care Act that, that allows for this. However, very few uh, insurance companies actually really want to do that. Mm-hmm. It's a very complex 
system and it's very hard for them to negotiate with doctors and stuff um, far away from where they are located. It's a lot easier for them to specialize in their their immediate location. So it, it received very little interest from insurance companies. And I believe there's some estimates that it it doesn't save too much money. Okay. Um, What's next? What's going to happen <laughs> in the next couple of weeks? And what should uh, ACA supporters or detractors, I suppose, look out for? Well, um, I think as we learned in the year 2016, if anyone tells you they know the future, uh, you shouldn't listen to them. <laughs> um, so don't listen to anything I have to say. But uh, I think... We'll continue to see a repeal effort from the Republicans and uh, as they uh, work on their budget process and look at replacement efforts to, to meet the needs of the repeal and replacement. I have no idea when that will come or, mm-hmm. or in what form that will exactly uh, come. I know that there's several bills and ideas that are, are going to start to get released in the future. And what that looks like for states and what how uh, people are going to respond is is all going to play out um, for us to watch and participate in. Yeah. And as someone who's worked in Washington, what do you suggest listeners do if they want to support the ACA? What, what have you seen as most effective? So there is a document that's been going around a lot on the Internet, and I'd be happy to send that along if you haven't seen it to post sure. on, on your, your site. But... This document says some of the strategies that people that used to work in Congress saw as the most effective. A friend of mine actually helped work on it. His name is Ezra Levine. And it tells you how to talk to your congressperson and how effective that should be. And if you, if you live in a state with a supportive senator and a support or two supportive senators and a, a supportive congressperson what what else you can do so that's a really great resource for people that want to get involved and want to do something there are a number of local organizations across the country that are working on rallies as we saw last weekend and i know that um, those rallies are going to continue to happen in the next couple of weeks um, and to keep an eye out on social media and whatnot for that. This is 2017, and unfortunately, Twitter and social media are a huge part of our day-to-day lives. And, yeah. But but for the the good of, of everyone, it's always good to have knowledgeable voices on those platforms and to um, really just show that what what the impact of the Affordable Care Act is on everyday um, individuals and to express concern to the folks that may not want. But as President or former President Barack Obama said last uh, week in his um, closing remarks, uh, we should all get off the Internet and have a face-to-face conversation with somebody who disagrees with us as well. Um, so keeping the conversation alive and really sharing facts and information about the law is uh, the best way to help ensure that it it passes or it it remains in place or a replacement is suitable enough to keep people insured. Uh, Listeners, I'll post the the document that Emma mentioned on the website. Emma, thank you so much for your time and expertise and uh, so so appreciative of your coming on the show. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate um, talking to you and, and I'm happy to be a resource if anyone has any questions. I'm sure my contact information will be on the site too. Great.
listening to Review of Systems. You can find links to all the articles and resources that we discussed on the show on our website, www.rospod.org. If you enjoyed the show, a quick reminder to please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us on social media. Tweet us your thoughts at ROS Podcast and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash review systems. Or you can email us at contact at ROSPod.org. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening.